0: This morning, I want us to get into the Word of God, and as we enter into this new year, we're starting into a new series. It's, it's a series that I believe is a, is a timely one to help us think through what's going on in our world. Over the next several weeks, we're going to continue to explore every Sunday a common theme and apply that theme to a number of different application areas in a series titled All Authority. All authority. Now this is a, a series that's been on my mind and my heart for, for several years actually as I've written out things I felt the Lord impress upon me for our church and, and it's kind of carried over year to year as I, I have a long list of things I, I, I sense the Lord wants us to engage in study of and hear from and then I'm kind of working down that list as I'm praying, Lord, well, okay, what's now? What's, what's for this season, this moment? And, and as I was doing that, I felt like uh, he impressed on me that this se- this season, season we are in, this series is the right one for us. So for the next several weeks, we're going to be on this theme, and and I want to kind of set it up real quickly, and then we'll we'll dive into the first application area this morning. One of the key texts that we rightly often talk about in the Christian church is a well-known verse. It comes from the end of the gospel according to Matthew. It's commonly known as the Great Commission, And in that text, we read of a declaration, we read of a command, and we read of a promise that had been made by Jesus. And really, those things should be at the center of our minds and our hearts as Christians seeking to live in this world as followers of him. Let me read the text to you, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Again, you're probably quite familiar with it. Jesus came to the disciples and said to them, Most often, when we look at this text, we are going to focus in on the command, right? The risen Christ commissioning his followers go and make disciples. You've heard that in, uh, I'm sure, many missionary sermons. You've heard that in sermons as a church where we've talked about the mission of the church. This is why God's people are left upon this earth. It's why we exist as a corporate body. That's the mission. Go wherever we go, really, is the, the better translation of that. Make disciples everywhere that we are, with everyone we encounter. It's what we ought to be doing with our lives. It's a call to join in the mission of God. Often that's where we spend our focus. Sometimes we focus in on the promise of Christ there at the end of the text, that he will be with us always. And we celebrate what an incredible promise that is from, again, the risen Christ. Jesus proved he was God, conquered the grave and death, and says, I will be with you wherever you go, whatever you do, whatever you face. I am with you Always. What an incredible promise and gift that that is. And I mean, we talked about that very thing last week, right? If you watched the live stream live or later, that was the theme of the message. Celebrating that our God is near us. He's with us. That gives us courage in times of fear. Gives us strength when we are weak. Gives us peace when there's unrest and danger and turmoil around us. But I think actually the most important part of these verses is actually... The grounding, it's the declaration statement that Jesus made that makes these other things so true and reliable and good. It's when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says, I am in charge of everything. I hold all authority over every area, over every aspect of existence. Wherever you go to fulfill the mission I'm sending you on, I'm in charge there. I am not sending you off into enemy territory where, where, you know, it's going to be dangerous and some other king rules that dark. No, no, I have all authority over all things, Jesus says. So where you go, I'm with you and I'm in charge. It's a declaration that means there's nothing, there's no one, there's nowhere that is beyond the realm of his authority. To quote the famous line from the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, he says, there is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence, over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. I love that. Jesus, God the Son, claims he has all authority over all things. And in the next several weeks throughout this series, we'll see what that means in some specific area, some specific spheres, if you will, of life. This morning, I want us to start at the the very beginning of where we see God's authority established and where it kind of spills out into these other arenas as well as we talk about God's authority over creation. This is going to be really important for us to see and to understand. So I'm glad you're here and those who aren't here, if you think of them this week and you're encouraging them this week, hey, I missed you, you you're going to want to encourage them, you're probably going to want to listen to that message once it's posted online because this really is going to bleed over into every other week of this series. These truths are going to be very foundational and we're going to build upon them as we go. Here's the big idea for us this morning. God, as the creator, has all authority over all of his creation. As the creator, God has all authority over all of his creation. So in Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 1 and going all the way to chapter 2, we find that great account of how this material world, how this universe that we inhabit, came to be. The opening verse, of course, is very well known to many of you who have church backgrounds. You've heard Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the verses that follow that reveal the power of God as he creates without any assistance, any tools, any real effort as we would think of effort. Over the course of six literal days, God simply speaks and creates everything that exists. In theological terms, we call it creation ex nihilo in Latin. It means creation from nothing. There were no raw materials that God was using, there was no shaping or reshaping of things that already existed. There was nothing but God Himself, and He simply said, Let there be, and the result immediately, the Bible tells us, is there was. God didn't have to come up with designs for anything. Didn't have to do a couple sketches, figure out how he was going to put that together. Creation wasn't a step-by-step process for God. The Ikea model, we can all agree, is not God's model for creating something, right? Not hating on Ikea. I've got lots of Ikea things in our home. But there's no assembly required for God in that way. He spoke, and it came into being. Exactly what he said and exactly what he meant with all the details and all the interconnectivity of creation. He simply said, let there be, and there was. The sheer power of God in Genesis 1 that's revealed there as he creates by his word is incredible and awe-inspiring. And it's a text that we we'd well serve to just dig into today and look at and unpack and build upon But because it's so familiar to many of us, as I thought about this message this morning, I thought about talking about this topic, I realized that if we're honest, and again, church is a great place to be honest with ourselves, with God, right? Sometimes, maybe a lot of times, when we go to a passage that we're pretty familiar with, we kind of tune out. And that can happen to any of us. And Genesis 1 is a pretty familiar passage. In fact, if you're in our Sunday school program, you've been through Genesis 1 within the last few months. And so I looked at that and I said, well, that's certainly a mistake because I can guarantee you nobody in this room, myself included, has mined Genesis 1 for all that Genesis 1 has to offer to us. We'd be well served to go back to that text, but knowing our own weakness and knowing the the grand scope of the Bible and how God repeats things that are very important for us to know, I decided let's go to a different text, another passage that will speak of the same things of Genesis 1, but that you're probably not quite as familiar with and might might cause you to listen a little closer to see what God is doing and what it means that God is the creator as he reveals himself to be. So if you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 104 this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to Psalm 104 this morning. This psalm describes the creative work of God that Genesis 1 also speaks of, but here it's done with a poetic and powerful language that I think can help stir our hearts and help us begin to see the implications of God as the creator, which will be so important in this series over the next several weeks. Turn to Psalm 104 in your Bible or in a pew Bible if you want to, or it will be on the screen, and you're going to want to see it because I'm going to read 23 verses here for you. So follow along with me if you're looking at the text. Bless Yahweh, O my soul. O Yahweh, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. He covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains and at your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took flight. The mountains rose and the valleys sank down to the place that you had appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass, so that they might never again cover the earth. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field, and the wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches, and from your lofty abode you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock, and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, bread to strengthen man's heart. The trees of Yahweh are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees, the high mountains are for the wild goats, the rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers." He, God, made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun know it's time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Verse 23: Man goes out to his work and to his labor unto the evening. Now, if we just pause here. Christians who are really listening, who are really looking at that text, who are really kind of trying to feel the weight of what's being said here, should have our hearts stirred in some way hearing this wonderfully poetic description of what God has done and who He is, the one who's created all things. Like I said, Genesis 1 has an incredible tone and emphasis in the repetition of those phrases, and God said, and it was. And reading Genesis 1 is is kind of like getting the view from a high level. It's getting the broad strokes. It's looking down from above, if you will, getting a sense of the power of the one who can create all things that exist simply by speaking. Genesis 1 should be an awe-inspiring start to understanding who God is and what he does. So think of it this way. From Genesis 1, from above, we get an incredible picture of the power of the creator God. But here in Psalm 104, the view's a little bit different, isn't it? Instead of looking down from the high level at creation, seeing what God has done in the way of Genesis 1, where all of creation is described in just a few short verses, here the psalmist is writing, instead of looking down, he's looking around a creation that he can see. He's looking up at the God who has made all things. The poetic language here should be moving to our hearts, even if you're not a big fan of poetry. The psalmist describes how God had stretched out the heavens, sat the earth on its foundations, covered it as with a garment. This is the language of someone who is meditating and has a heart in awe of the creator God. It's someone who wants to worship him as he describes what he sees and gets to experience in this universe God's put him in and blessed him with. The psalmist describes God's work on the third day in particular by saying not simply as it does in Genesis and God said and it was, but he says, no, at God's rebuke, the waters fled. At his word, the mountains rose, the valleys sank to the places of God's desire." The psalmist is marveling at creation as he describes it, how God makes springs gush, rivers flow, animals have fresh water to drink. It is God, he says, who causes the blades of grass to grow and every plant to rise. He is the one who marks the seasons with the moon that he has made and causes the sun to know its time of setting. This is the power. This is the work of God. So from below, from this ground-level view, if you will, Psalm 104 marvels at the beauty and details of the Creator God's wonderful work. But the psalm doesn't end here. If you've looked at the text in your Bible, you know we're we're only part way through. And so it continues on. And not only does the psalmist give us this model for how we can meditate and how we can worship God with such poetic description of what we see and appreciate around us, But it shows us in the following verses some of the implications of God as creator. Some of the things we need to pick up on for this series in particular as we study it. Psalm 104 shows us what it means that God has all authority over his creation. Look at the next few verses. Verses 24 to 27 read this. O Lord, O Yahweh, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. In there go the ships and the leviathan, which you have formed to play in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. The psalmist takes up just just one aspect of creation upon this earth and impacts what God, as the creator and sustainer of His creation, does, and ultimately. He's talking about ways that I believe are entirely underappreciated, are are sadly rarely thought of in modern society. In fact, they're outright denied by so many people today. But look at what the psalmist understands of God as creator and sustainer of his world. The text tells us that the earth is full of your creatures. Notice it doesn't say the earth is full of creatures. The earth is full of God's creatures. Creatures. God is the creator of all creatures, a foundational truth denied by so many in our society today. The psalmist knows this to be true. Everything that lives upon the earth is a creature, a creation made by God. Nothing exists that he himself did not create. He did not just put you and I onto a pre-populated planet as if some other deity is the animal God, some other deity is the fish God who made those things. God himself made all that exist. They are creatures, his creatures, the text says. And so the psalmist is looking to just one part of God's creation. He's looking to the seas, which he says are great and wide. And today, we know the seas on this world, as we've been able to kind of map the the topography of the globe, we know those seas that he says are great and wide cover over 71% of our planet's surface. Truly, they are great and wide, right? And the psalmist says they teem with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. Now, we can say the psalmist. I mean, he lives in Israel, right? I mean, kind of, you get a little bit of ocean out to the, to the west there, but, you know, surely he's just limited in his knowledge. We know the things of the ocean. Did you know, according to the U.S. National Oceanic Service, even in our modern era, scientists estimate that 91% of the ocean's species have yet to be classified, and more than 80% of the oceans themselves are unmapped, unobserved, and unexplored. Now, this is not a statement of someone who just doesn't really understand the world the way you and I understand the world. This is someone who understands. These seas, these oceans, teem with creatures innumerable, and it doesn't matter if you live thousands of years before Christ or you live thousands of years after Christ. They're innumerable. The World Register of Marine Species says experts publishing their findings recently listed a total of 228,450 marine species worldwide, but... Estimated up to 2 million more multi-celled marine organisms are still unknown. (laughs) So on this planet, in the oceans alone, truly to us there are creatures innumerable, living things both small and great, created by whom? God. In verse 27, the psalmist declares this mystifying truth things we can't even number, things we can't even count, things we can't even understand. With all of our scientific knowledge today, the psalmist understands God has made all of them, and it says, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. Understand, all of creation is dependent upon God. He is the one who gives life, and he is the one who sustains life for every creature that exists. We can't even count the species in the oceans. He has made them all, knows them all, sustains them all. This is the power of the God who we serve, who's revealed himself in Scripture to us, who has saved us and entered into relationship with us. It should cause us to be in awe of him, to praise him, to marvel at him, That's what the psalmist does in the verses following. When he focuses on this reality, he says, When you give it to them, food, life, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. But look at the contrast in verse 29. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. Who's in control of life and death? It's the God whom the psalmist worships. God, who creates all creatures, is the one who sustains the life of all his creatures, too. He provides food. He gives breath. He establishes the times and the places where his creatures will live. The boundaries of their existence are fixed by him. And that's not just true of the creatures in the sea or the animals that are on the land. Paul says very plainly, this truth, this principle applies to you and I, mankind, as advanced as we think we are, as independent as we think we are, as much ability as we think we have to control our own lives, you and I and all other human beings are in the hand and the plan of God. Acts 17 26 says, and God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He, he, having determined allotted periods, and the boundaries of their dwelling places. This is true of every human being. It's true of you. It's true of me. It's true of our neighbors who are around us. It's true of every person who lives on this globe, whether they lived in the past or they live right now. All of our boundaries, all of our times and places are determined by the hand of the Creator Himself. So Paul goes on in Acts 17 to tell his hearers, because that's who God is as the creator, as the sustainer, as the one with authority over these lives he has made, then you and I as his creatures should repent, we should obey God, we should follow him and not pursue idols or lesser things that we are so prone to be drawn to worship. So here's the, the key application. If you're taking notes, write this down. This truth needs to go with us into every single week as we go forward. The power and the authority of God as creator demands full submission and obedience from all of his creation. The power and authority of God as the creator demands full submission and obedience from all of his creation. And we're talking about this today and we're going to talk about this over the coming weeks because many people, most people, if we're honest, do not accept these truths. They do not find joy in the realities that the psalmist is expressing and praising God for. In fact, most people in our world today are seeking at some level conscious or subconsciously to explain away the authority and the power and the rule of God. Over his creation. Many people are living in abject rebellion against their creator. Most people arrogantly today are taking the breath that God gives, the food that he provides, the life that he is sustaining, and in turn they deny that he even exists. They ignore his commands that have been given. They act as if they are their own gods. They are self-existent. They are self-made. They are the rulers of themselves and their own lives. And that thought, that life, that approach to living in this world is dealt with strikingly throughout scripture, but perhaps nowhere more strikingly than Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. If you have a bookmark, I'd slip it here because we're coming back to this text several times throughout this series, but I want to walk through it very quickly this morning as we head towards the conclusion of this first message. And I want you to notice a few things here in Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. This means that those who do not submit to the authority of God are the objects of God's wrath. While God is incredibly patient and long-suffering and merciful and gracious not to destroy sinners at the moment they sin, which he would be perfectly just to do, he is still nonetheless perfectly righteous and will reveal his wrath for sin one day. As the Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, men flatter themselves in sin And think that God, having spared them all this while, never intends to punish them. Because their consequences have been put off, surely therefore there will be no consequences, they think. Hear me clearly. According to Romans chapter 1, this text we're going to look at in this week and in weeks to come, and many other places in the Bible too, that is utter foolishness to live or think that way. God's wrath is not set aside and forgotten because he does not strike you down the moment you look at that thing you're not supposed to look at, say that thing you're not supposed to say, do that thing you weren't supposed to do. His justice is not overpowered by anything else. His justice is not a lesser part of his nature. The truth matters. Sins are serious. They are always seen by him and they will be dealt with. God's righteous wrath toward the unrepentant sinner and rebel is being stored up and will inevitably, unfailingly be poured out. So second, understand this morning, God has all authority because he is the creator of all things. And this reality removes all excuse from every person who exists. People, sometimes even Christian people, Will push back against this plain teaching from the Bible and disbelieve the truth that there is right now no salvation to be found outside of the personal work of Jesus Christ. They'll push back against the teaching of the Bible that says everyone is guilty of sin and rebellion against God. They are sinners by their nature and by their own choice, and they deserve, in and of themselves, wrath from God, eternal punishment for their sins. That's not a popular view for many people. Jesus' own claim and teaching that he is the only way to salvation, the only way to forgiveness of sins, has long been seen as offensive. It was offensive in his own day, and has been offensive at every moment of history since then. Today, it is still offensive. It goes right against the modern sentiments, the pluralism that's rampant in our own day. But hear what is said of humanity and of our shared natural state in these next two verses in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20. We read, For what can be known about God is plain to them, to his creation, because God has shown it to them. His invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they, all of them, all of us, are without excuse. Understand, there's no innocent person, according to the Bible. Everyone is a sinner by nature and by choice who has rejected God, who has rebelled against his authority, who have failed to rightly and perfectly submit themselves to obey and honor their God, the creator. And so God is going to send unrepentant sinners who do not trust in Jesus Christ to hell because they've rebelled against him as their creator. So the the theoretical scenario of how is it just, how is it right for God to send the innocent man in Africa to hell who's never heard the name of Jesus. He's not going to hell because he never heard the name of Jesus. He's going to hell because he's a rebel against his creator. He lives in God's world. He can see that God exists by looking around this world but he has rejected it and he has rebelled against God and he will go to hell for that sin. The problem is not that he didn't get to hear about it. Jesus it's not his fault. You know whose fault that is? It's ours. The ones given the message and the command. We started with go. Make disciples. If there's a guy in Africa who doesn't know the name of Jesus, the way of salvation, that burden is on us to go. There is no innocent man in Africa who goes to heaven because he never heard the name of Jesus, and that's loving. No, there's a rebel sinner in Africa who has no hope of salvation because God's people have failed to take the message of salvation to him. The text plainly tells us nature itself, living in God's created world here, is fully sufficient to reveal to us that there is a God, there is a creator who exists and should be worshipped for his power and his divine nature. So there is no excuse for anyone that God has made. Creation itself, what we call natural revelation, the fact that you live in God's universe, it works according to God's sustaining power, is sufficient to make every creature without excuse. Unapologetus is the Greek word. Without an apology, without a defense, without an excuse. And everyone who rejects the worship of their creator stands guilty before God. The third implication of this is that God is the creator with all authority over all things. And it means it is futile and foolish to worship anything other than the one true God. Look again at these next verses in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 23. For although they knew God, who knew God? Those his creatures who live in God's world, who has been revealed he exists because you live in his world. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Look, this is not just true of the ancient pagan that Paul's speaking of in Romans chapter 1. Right? This heart posture, this rejection, of this, this is true of every sophisticated, modern, educated man. No matter how much technology we have, no matter how intelligent we are, how popular we may be, how successful we feel in this life, anyone and everyone who does not submit to God's power and authority is, the Bible says, a fool. And their pursuits, their hopes Their works, their efforts, they're all futile. But tragically, far too many people do not submit to God and do not recognize His authority. They will continue to live as fools, pursuing futile things money, power, image, possessions, friends, pleasures, experiences. In the end, what they will find is the righteous and just wrath of God towards their rebellion towards their ungodliness and unrighteousness in suppressing the truth of who God is and what he demands. So there are some, there are some, especially where we live here, who will culturally take on the name of Christ, want to be seen as identifying with this name because there's social benefit to be gained right now in the moment we live in from that identification. Identification. But really, in their hearts, they're living in pursuit of other things, futile things, idolatrous things. So, in their heart, there are some who are not in name, but in their hearts, are living just like the foolish atheist lives. They're not submitting to God, they're not obeying his commands. They're simply demanding, expecting, God will save me because I've done some things. I've gone to church, I've given some money, I've been decently moral compared to other people in other places at least. I've done some ritualistic religious duties. Surely that's enough to placate God. It's a dangerous and deceptive place to be if you don't recognize his authority over all things, all aspects, all spheres of your life really trying to add God into your own pursuits, wanting the benefits that he provides without living under the authority that he possesses, its futility on full display. It's living the life of a fool according to the Bible. So understand this. The functional atheist is under the wrath of God for their rebellion against him just as much as the intellectual or professed atheist. What I mean is, if you live in your heart, trying to get out of living under the authority of God, you are living as if there is no God, and the Bible says you are a fool. So we're going to be hearing and examining God's word in this series, and we're going to look at the extent and the scope of God's authority, specifically the fact that God has all authority over all things in all spheres of life and existence, And I'm going to plead with you through this series to respond as a wise person who fears the Lord and worships God as he has revealed himself to be, to not become or not continue as the fool who says either out loud or in your heart, there is no God. I'm going to plead with you. Do not live as a person who thinks that God's power and authority is not over your life. It's not over every sphere of your life. You give him church time and then you're in charge of the rest of your life. I'm going to plead with you. Don't do that. Don't be that fool. Going back to the earlier text that we were in, the psalmist celebrates the incredible reality of God's power and authority, causes joy for him, rejoicing in praise in Psalm 104. I think his response should be our response. I want his response to be our response. Psalm 104, verses 31 to 34 say, May the glory of Yahweh endure forever. May Yahweh rejoice in his works. He who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke, I will sing to Yahweh as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been. May my meditations be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in Yahweh. The psalmist resolves he is going to glorify God. He's going to worship him. He's going to meditate. He's going to think on who God is. He's going to understand what his authority over all things entails. He's resolved he will live a life that pleases God, a life that will enjoy and rejoice in God. And those thoughts should be our thoughts. So I'm going to plead with us, Christians, live as true Christians, recognizing God's authority over our lives, every aspect, every sphere of our existence. I'm going to call us to develop and pursue a desire to deeply meditate upon God and his authority and living lives in obedience to him, whether we're in church or we're at work or we're in our homes or we're on vacation, whether we're with people or whether we're alone. We live in dangerous times, not physically yet, though I fear that may come in my lifetime, physically dangerous time to be a Christian, as it is for many of our brothers and sisters around the world. But we certainly live in this moment right now in a spiritually dangerous time. We can't afford to play games with our faith. Press in, commit it all, submit fully to God. Recognize He has, as He said, absolute authority So develop a life system, a worldview that's interconnected in every part to you living in the reality of being a follower of God, one who has said, he is your Lord, he is your God, he is the one whom you will obey. Worship him, obey him in all that you think and say and do in every sphere of your life. So for all of us today in this room, we have a great gift given to us. God brought us here safely. He's given us time in this place, to hear his word. He's given us breath and life and the opportunity right now to respond to him, to respond to the fact that the creator God, who's made all that exists and sustains all that exists, is willing to say right now, if you draw close to him, he will draw close to you. If you seek him, you will find him. This is the opportunity for you and I To come into contact with the one who can change us. The one who can free us from the things that hold us so captive. The things that would distract us so easily. He's the one who can build you up. He's the one who can draw you to himself. He's the one who can reveal how much better he is than anything else you could pursue. So we have this moment. We have this time right here. Where really the the clock is ticking, but it's just a clock ticking. We could take as much time as we need in this place to meet with the living God. And He's inviting you to do that now, to come to the one who says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Wendy, team, if you'll come. We're gonna take a few minutes to respond to the Lord right now, to recognize He has all authority over all things over all his creatures in all spheres of life and existence and he invites you and i to come and humble ourselves and meet with him today i pray the lord would do that in many hearts right now if you want to come to the altars you're welcome to if you want to move around the room you're welcome to turn kneel in your in your pew get up pray with somebody make the most of these moments The living God with all authority over every aspect of your life is ready to meet with you. Let's worship him and respond to him this morning.